I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Hard Yards in Leadership. I'm Wayne Rubin, and I'll be your host. So today's guest is quite an extraordinary individual. Her name is Sammy Kennedy Sim. If you're into winter sports, you would instantly know her because she is winter sport royalty. And if you're not into winter sports, you're about to be enthralled and amazed by an enduring success story from a wonderful Australian who we should all be proud of. So Sammy represented Australia at three consecutive Winter Olympics, including the last one where she was given the really quite special honour of being the flag bearer in the closing ceremony. I'm always in awe of people who are able to get to the top of their chosen sport, but I'm, I take that up another notch completely when, when I meet people who've been able to not just get to the top of their chosen sport, but stay there for a long period of time. And there are very, very few people who represent their country at three consecutive Olympics, especially in something like uh, ski cross, which is Sammy's chosen sport, which is both physically incredibly demanding, challenging, and outright dangerous. So when we meet people like this, there's so much about their story that we can learn from and and, and I just know that you're going to enjoy learning about Sammy's story from when she grew up in Sydney as just a sporting kid to when she started to take an interest in winter sports and learnt that she had some quite particular talent and then had all of the challenges of growing up as an Australian trying to make it in winter sports when, uh, news newsflash, Australia is not exactly the ideal place to become a winter Olympian. We don't have much snow and our seasons are upside down compared to the rest of the world. So Sammy shares openly not just her achievements in sport, but also the personal challenges of having to leave family and friends and go and be on the other side of the world for extended periods and find your way in European society effectively and training groups that were completely dominated by Europeans. So Sammy's story is not just about being great at sport, but all of the hardships that she's had to work through. I will call out now, Sammy's story is not necessarily pure hard yards in leadership, but they are hard yards in truckloads. And from my perspective, when I hear people like Sammy, there's just so much I can take back into the world of leadership in terms of how she demonstrates resilience, how she sets her mind to the process at play, and how she takes an attitude of continuous improvement. So you're going to love learning from Sammy. You're going to enjoy hearing her story. She is an open, insightful, delightful individual. And I'm thrilled to say, welcome, Sammy Kennedy Sim. Thank you so much for having me, Wayne. I have been so looking forward to having this conversation with you. You have the most extraordinary career and there's so many things I'm keen to unpack about your story. For those who are not heavily into their winter sports, why don't we start with a quick kind of 30 seconds, just like your journey in, in elite sport in hyperspeed. All right. Well, um, as we just alluded to, I'm Sammy Kennedy Sim. I am a three-time Australian Olympian in the sport of ski cross. And for those of you playing a lot at home, ski cross is 
kind of like BMX, but on skis and snow, not on a bike. Um, so it's a contact sport sort of, um, an elimination round format, and it is a whole bunch of fun. And I just retired last year in 2022. Awesome. And, and just completing the non-sport part of your story, something, something pretty incredible has also happened for you um, quite recently too, right? Yes, I am a new mum, which is very Yay. exciting. Um, so, yeah, in my, you know, year and a bit since I retired, I've retired from sport, started a new career and had a baby. So, um, you know, don't do anything in halves. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah. All right, Sammy. So, um, when people hear three times Olympian, we all instantly understand that you don't wake up one day and suddenly become an Olympian. There's a long, long road and, you know, we call this podcast Hard Yards and, and, and my guess is there are an extraordinary number of hard yards to become an Olympian, but not just any Olympian because becoming a winter Olympian in Australia where we don't exactly have a, neither a lot, of, a lot of winter nor a lot of kind of like ski slopes and everything. Tell us a bit about like from where did this inspiration come from that took you on this journey? Well, I am the youngest of three daughters to quite sporty parents and was fortunate that um, being the youngest, family holidays and things were well ingrained in my family and, and one of those family holidays was a week or so down at the snow each year. My dad started skiing with his family when he was little and it was something that he wanted to share with us. And I was very sporty whilst I was an adolescent, probably didn't attend much school because if there was sport on, I knew that it got me out of school. So, you know, I was always trying to do the things that I enjoyed. <laughs> and it got to the kind of point when I was in my mid to late teen years that I had to start making some decisions about the sports that I was playing because my season started to conflict. So I did competitive surf lifesaving. And I did uh, touch football um, at a quite a high level. However, we didn't have a, a stream back then for women in rugby. So that was kind of a dead end. The Olympic dream was kind of ignited for me as a year six kid going to watch the Sydney 2000 Olympics in our backyard. And, you know, skiing was something that I always enjoyed with my family and, and I wasn't too bad at. So, you know, I started to skew my choices away from summer and away from my other interests like music, art and drama and place myself here in the snowy mountains when I could for school and, and you know, chase that winter dream. And from that first desire to chase, like how did that narrow down to the specific winter sport that you chose? I competed in alpine skiing for a long time, which is a more traditional, um, you know, if you go for a ski holiday in Threadbow or Perisher, you go alpine skiing or snowboarding on the resort. So that was the discipline that I was doing at the time. In hindsight, I had quite a lot of potential and probably was a bit distracted as a teenager um, in terms of creating a, a leap from a development or participation level of sport to an elite level of sport in that discipline. Partly because in that sport you compete against the clock and I didn't like coming down after a run and justifying my whether my performance was good or bad based on a clock. You know, I might have executed a couple of things really well, but the clock said that I was slower or I was faster and you kind of a bit like a running race, I guess. However, I fell into the sport of ski cross just for fun. There was a, a fun X Games style event held in the Snowy Mountains one winter when I was 18 
and this sport had all of the elements of alpine skiing that I liked but you knew what position you were in because you were racing three other people. So if you were winning, you were out in front, you know, and if you weren't out in front, you were chasing down somebody else. And it kind of released this inner competitive animal that I probably, that was always there in my other sports, but never got the potential to come out until I was in this moment, in this exposure. And Fortunately, at the time, they just announced that this new discipline of ski cross would be in the Vancouver 2010 Olympic Games for the first time. So all of a sudden, this pathway opened up and and trying this sport for the first time at Threadbow in that, you know, fun event actually prolonged or created a career potential for me because really I was a highly skilled participant before that in my other discipline. And yeah, you know, if you'd have told me then at 18 that at 33 or 34 that I'd be having three Olympics under my belt and five or six world championship teams and a couple of World Cup podiums, I would have like told you you were dreaming because that to me was like ancient (laughs) back then. (laughs) Turns out though, coming into my prime was in my 30s. It's amazing, isn't it? And so from that kind of sense of, hey, this ski cross thing like might be my kind of like my my swim lane, right? I'm sure as you started to like focus on that, there was also this realisation of like to go anywhere in the world of skiing, like I have to be able to do something bigger than or, or rely on something bigger than what Australia has to offer in terms of training and, and physically kind of a place to be and whatever else. Share some of those yeah. those early kind of like just, just how, how some of those things evolved for you, for you Sammy, because it's it, it's a fascinating space, right? I guess the first thing to note is when you're a winter sport athlete, it doesn't matter where you live in the world, you have to compete in the winter. Um, we don't have any World Cup competitions in Australia. There is a couple of disciplines that have one or two maybe in New Zealand. Other than that, our main competition season is from October through till April, and that's in the Northern Hemisphere. And that could be across North America, Asia, Europe, Scandinavia. Um, one of my favourite World Cup stops is always in Russia. So, you know, the places you go, you go, the people you meet, the things you do in these in this world is it, it's quite an, an a unique experience for us in Australia as athletes. We have a unique scenario in that we do have a winter in Australia and we do have ski resorts that can cater to us in a training capacity. However, you know, we have to kind of treat ourselves like our winter in Australia is our summer because you can't just ski all year round. You know, you can't be like a track and field athlete, a hundred meter sprinter isn't just doing a hundreds all year. You know, he's doing some four hundreds to make sure that he's in good condition and the training changes throughout the year. So With that in mind, more and more I was spending more and more time in the snowy mountains as a youth athlete and I ended up taking term three, the winter term, away from school and doing my schoolwork uh, down here and under the guidance of my mum or or even in the end I ended up going and doing school at a local school for term three and then I we sort of had the conversation at home. I was at a school for performing arts in Sydney and we were like, well, if the skiing thing is really serious, you know, you've got to start like let's start putting ourselves in the situation where we can make it a bit easier on the family. You know, it's the commitment to the family of having an aspirational athlete is a lot, um, especially when you live in on the northern beaches and you're six hours away from the snow. Yeah. So, yeah, I went to Snow Mountains Grammar for a term three and then I never left. 
and that was in year nine. And then, you know, my family relocated and and made it work, which was an incredible sacrifice. Maybe not a sacrifice because obviously they chose to put me in the sport and they chose to make those opportunities happen. But they, you know, they did have to dedicate a lot of their time to this pursuit of excellence. So, Sammy, it's really interesting for me, like given the challenges you were saying and the, the, the oddities of the Australian winter versus everyone else in the world and whatever else, can you remember the first time you and I guess your family confronted the need or opportunity of going overseas to either compete or train? I can remember. my eldest, One of my elder sisters was also chasing this dream once upon a time and we went and visited her in Gerlos in Austria as a family, which was amazing. So I would have been eight, I think. So the first time I went on a holiday overseas, which was very, very fortunate. And again, experiencing like that cultural difference that you know, winter sports is really a part of a northern hemisphere or a mountain village's life and that's their blood. That was a really amazing experience. The first time I actually went overseas for myself to train, I actually went without my parents and I was 11. And I went on a four or six week camp with the Australian children's team to Les Arcs in France and did my first competitions overseas and had this amazing experience with, you know, eight other youth athletes um, all over Australia and it was really clear to me that this was a sport that could open up the world to me you know no other sport that I was engaging in could take me all these amazing places and and give me the life experience that you you just can't have without the pursuit of something like this Mm -hmm. and that mixture of fun and almost like a holiday But with the structure of training and things meant that my parents, again, fortunately were in a situation where they could afford to to help fund that, but they had faith in me going away without them because there was a purpose to the trip. Um, It wasn't just a holiday. And that that continued, you know, forever. They realised very quickly as parents that they needed to step back and they could have opinions and they could assist and they could help shape me and my path as an athlete, but ultimately the reins needed to be handed over to an expert. And whilst they may have the ideas a lot of the times, they weren't the expert. And and I'm sure that there's probably a whole nother podcast in that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure there is. Um, <laughs> that's above my pay grade as well. So we're going to leave that one go. But I'm also interested, Sammy, as you kind of, as you started to kind of get involved in that very different world of the Northern Hemisphere sort of winter and, and everything that goes with that. Like were there times when you were like feeling like a fish out of water, like us Aussies, you know, with our kind of lifestyle and everything, was that always just an easy run and, and a dream or or were there some hard yards in there too? Definitely hard yards, particularly um, as a teenager when I was pursuing alpine skiing and really I wasn't in love with the discipline the way that I turned out to be in love with ski cross. I questioned what I was doing all the time. And that was as a youth athlete, let alone when I was doing it as a job. I still continued to question it as an elite athlete, but for different reasons. You know, the perpetual question of like, will I ever make it? What is making it even going to look like? You know, I feel like I'm, you know, coming over into this world where these kids have been skiing and pursuing this just recreationally from day dot, whereas the barriers for us in Australia 
given our short winter and, you know, your proximity to the mountains and the, you know, elevated cost of the sport in Australia. Um, For example, you know, there might be an athlete that would be in Australia pursuing this paying thousands and thousands of dollars for a three-month winter, which probably had two months on snow. And a kid in Austria is paying 50 euro a year to be part of his local ski club. So, you know, it's, it's a big difference in terms of accessibility. So with that, with that in mind, I also, and with the help of my parents and, and coaches along the way, we found ways to integrate ourselves into those communities overseas and get that race club feeling um, and feeling of belonging, which to me turns out is really important. <laughs> I probably didn't realise it then, but I definitely know that now. And, you know, I went and joined race clubs in Whistler or in Kitzbühel in Austria or in Lergang and, and, and yeah, I, I really was able to kind of lean into that cultural difference and submerse myself at one stage was even going to move over to Europe and go to school in Austria. Thankfully, I didn't. I think that would, whilst it would have been great for me athletically, spending that much time away from home probably wasn't a good thing. And to be honest, as I said earlier, I spent a lot of time at school playing sport and finding ways to avoid school. So being in a school where I had to do the school to do the sport (laughs) probably wouldn't have been great, (laughs) let alone in another language. And where in the journey did you start to stare down, gosh, I think I'm on a path to, you know, we talk about this thing of being an elite athlete, but an elite athlete is also generally someone who is a full-time athlete and you know, there's a, a reordering of things there, right? And wanting to compete and things like world championships and stuff like that, even even aside from Olympics, there is there is a certain point where it goes from I'm doing this a lot to I need to take this up a notch to compete at that true elite level. Tell us about that part of your journey. The first part of that would be that I had a conversation when I, I moved to Jindabyne, you know, during high school and the first part of me of what happened to shape me being me today is that I decided not to finish school because I was having to spend six to nine months of the year on the road and the subjects I was doing at school like art music and drama required major bodies of work and I was never there (laughs) and I had great advice from my careers advisor at school who I actually have reconnected with in the last sort of few years. Um, he's actually still working now in skiing. And I've told him this, that he really helped me make this decision, which was, you know, we had these, you had the sit down with the careers advisor and it was like, well, what do you want to be? And, you know, it was, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a physio. And I was like, I want to be a World Cup ski racer. And he was like, well, what are you doing your HSC for? You know, you can go to university as a mature age student for so many things, you know, as long as you don't want to be a doctor, a vet, uh, whatever, you know, it'll be a bit harder for you. But you don't need your HSC to go to university. And if you don't know what it is that you want to do at university, if anything, why are we doing this? What great advice. It was really good advice. And I then had to put my tail between my legs and go talk to my parents about that. My dad was living in China at the time, working in, on developing hotels in China, so he wasn't home. And I had to have the conversation of, well, I don't think that I want to f- complete my HSC. I did pathways, so I was doing my year 12 over two years to try and bide myself some time. I completed the first year and told my parents with their blessing, obviously, that I wasn't going to continue. And 
the catalyst to that was they said to me, well, what are you going to do instead? And I ended up going and doing my fitness and strength and conditioning qualifications so that I was learning something about the industry that I was continuing to pursue as an athlete, but also I'd become employable. So that was a really, really, in hindsight, it was a smooth transition. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was pretty rocky at the time if I put myself back in there <laughs> now as a teenage girl dealing with mum and dad. But, you know, I, I was able to get some advice to continue to learn and be upskilled without having just school and university be the answer. I actually pursued university later, although I ended up having to give it away because I was traveling too much and it was too difficult. But that was sort of the first, like, like you, you talk about that canon event that could have changed. If, if that advice was different, and there was this emphasis put on school and, and grades and things, I probably would have failed at school and would have been so depleted that I probably wouldn't have been able to succeed in anything else and who knows what my life would look like now. So that was, I kind of like to think of that as whilst, you know, we all know that when you leave school, you go into the big ride world and no one really cares about school anymore. That was a really great transition for me. What happened after that, though, was at at nineteen. You know, I was really I, I de- now had decided to to pursue ski cross. So I've met ski cross and and decided that you know I'd try and give it a red hot crack to go to an Olympics one day. Not necessarily to Vancouver twenty ten, but to one. And I met my now husband when I was nineteen years old, and he was pursuing the Olympic dream too. He was a cross country skier. So all of a sudden I was surrounding myself with people who were on similar paths and were like-minded and that rubs off on you. So again, like another canon event, if I hadn't have gone to that friend's party and if I hadn't have done those things, you know, would Ben and I be together? And, and he has had an immense effect on me and my discipline as an athlete because he was a phenomenal and still is a phenomenal athlete. So I wanted to be like him. And that's the beautiful thing about winter sports is we are a very small community. You know, you get integrated quite quickly. And even though we are a small country and a summer country, we are very strong in winter sports. So the work ethic and the culture is really great and it's really easy to lean into. I want to jump in on that on that work ethic, um, Sammy, because I guess this is where there's a com- – like to get to the levels that, that you got to, there's got to be a tremendous amount of kind of self-discipline, but there's also a certain amount of being a part of a team in one sense or another and, and having, you know, people around you who are kind of like, you know, helping to make all of this happen. So share with us about how you went through that process of escalating your training and dedication to the level required to I guess, was it a world championship that was your first kind of like big event? Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. Um, look, at, like I said, I think I'm a, I'm a strong believer that you are a direct reflection of the five closest people that you spend the most time with. And as a teenager, particularly around that 18, 19-year-old mark where I was not doing well as well as I could have done in, in alpine skiing and you know, the ski cross was kind of dangled here as a cherry for me to pursue and it would have been really easy to just party and be an 18-year-old and live the ski resort lifestyle or whatever. Like there was a lot of distractions around. But, you know, meeting Ben and, and the friends that we shared, which was funny because we have the same circle, we just didn't really know each other. We were all, you know, nine of ten of us were all aspiring athletes in some way, shape or form. So 
all of a sudden it's really easy to show up and to continue to show up day in and day out and to show up more than you did the day before when that's who you're surrounding yourself with. So that sort of really was the catalyst to, to me probably get exploring my work ethic. You know, I think you always think that you've worked as hard as possible and then you go, oh, I totally could have done more. <laughs> and that's just, you know, that's I think that's a, a product of being a high achiever. You know, you, you go to exertion and to failure and then you stop and you go, oh, it's not bad. <laughs> Yet five seconds beforehand, <laughs> you know, you're about to die, feeling like you're going to die. So especially being around Ben in his, in his sport, you know, ski cross for me, was really, really fun. And training for my sport was fun. So there were hard parts, but the actual doing my sport was fun. Ben was a cross-country skier, which is like marathon running on snow. So he showed up at a at a start line of a World Cup and knew that he was going to hurt harder than he'd ever hurt in training before. And we talk about this still. You know, he retired in 2011, 2012, and we still talk about this now regularly because I sit there going, how, do you, how did you do that, you know, like you're just willing to go and punish yourself. And he's like, yeah, I don't know, you just did it. I'm like, yeah, cool, okay, thanks for the insight. He definitely, though, because I I felt that he was so talented and so disciplined, that rubbed off on me. Which is an extraordinary gift really ultimately, isn't it? But even that that thing you were saying about that, that's like those nine people around you being kind of essentially on that same path. When you look back now and kind of think about the number of distractions when you're in your late teens, you know, that's extraordinary. For the listeners and, and for me, what does a week's training, when you're kind of really on, what does a week's training look like, you know, back then? Would you like to know in Australia in winter or um, Australia in like a pre-season or do you want to know when you're on the road overseas? Mash them. <laughs> All right. So pre-season in Australia typically was sort of, April through May, beginning into the beginning of our winter, which was the you come home from overseas, you need a bit of a break, and then it's the grind. It's the getting your body back into training. It's the it's where where the hard work is done to bring your fitness back into into the right level or, or increase your strength and your strength endurance. And you spend a lot of time in the gym. I spend a lot of time on the bike. That's hard work because you're not actually doing your sport. So that's for you to do your sport safely and then also to do it well. Then you transfer into the Australian winter, which would typically be, for me, a focus still remaining on that outside of snow time. So the focus remains gym work and strength and conditioning and fitness. However, we had moments of uh, opportunity to do things on snow to capitalise you know, on the resorts here and the great resort support that we receive here. So I would go up, you know, I'd be getting up at five o'clock in the morning, driving up the hill, doing two or three hours of training on snow, usually privately, which was amazing from the ski resort. And then by the time the public come on the hill, I'd go home, have some breakfast and then do two or three gym sessions. And that would be, you know, reset, repeat five to six days a week. So, you know, automatically, or then when you're overseas, I should say in, in the pre-competition season, we base ourselves usually at a glacier, so you're at high altitude, so everything's high, harder at high altitude. Just breathing and recovering and sleeping is harder, let alone adding in, you know, six or seven hours on snow plus gym work or complementary work and physio rehabilitation and things like that. So you can start to see that when you think about your year as an Australian winter sport athlete, there's not a whole lot of room for a lot else, you know, when it comes to work or family or social or even study. Now with online, it's a lot easier, but 
it does start to consume. The more you pursue, the better you get, the better you get, the more time it takes up in your life, you know, and and that sort of, for me, I made the Australian national team in 2010, so just after the Vancouver Olympics. I missed out just on the Vancouver Olympics, which in hindsight was a great thing because I was not ready for Olympics. <laughs> I would not have had a good performance there. But I made that team in 2010 and then obviously retired in 2023. Hey, folks, a brief interruption to the episode. So, look, if you listen to my podcast, I'd be pretty confident you're wanting to be the best leader you can be. And likely, you're also, like me, committed to the pursuit of high performance. But in my experience, there just aren't that many opportunities for business leaders to really learn from and engage with proven high performance. Moreover, I've come to learn that many of the best learns about high performance come from disciplines outside the business world, like elite sport and military. And of course, for most of us, it's just not that easy to interact with people from these worlds, especially at an up-close and personal level. So I made a decision to change that. So with some awesome colleagues, I crafted the ultimate High Performance Leadership Summit, an opportunity for leaders to interact with the best of the best across multiple disciplines. We've got Sammy Kennedy Sim, arguably Australia's most enduring high-performance Winter Olympian, and she was the flag bearer of the last Winter Olympics. We've got Dave Ballard, who's the head of high performance at the powerhouse Brisbane Broncos NRL team. Then there's Cliff Morgan, ex-Royal Australian Air Force, with over 15 years combining active military service and military leadership training. And then Cliff and the unstoppable Ali Flynn bring the mindset understanding of organisational psychology. And then, of course, yours truly and Pearl Lim, we bring it all together with our long history of delivering high performance in the world of multinational business, where you probably come from. The Ultimate High Performance Leadership Summit takes place March 8 to 10. It's near Brisbane in Australia, and it's restricted to just 25 participants. If you want to be part of this exceptional experience, click the link in the show notes for more info or message me via LinkedIn. Happy to have a chat. Now, let's get back to the episode. So you've just shared what I'm sure literally every single person listening to this podcast is going to think is oh my gosh, like this is so much more than just like go out and and ski a bunch of hours every day. Tell me about like there's the physical challenge of doing that, but then let's put that over 13 years and then just the, the mental challenge of staying at that level of commitment because if you back off a smidge, you basically ruined it, right? Mm-hmm. So how did you continue to find the mental strength to keep up that over a dozen plus years, Sammy? The, I think the thing to remember is like the heart, like like a muscle, you know, the brain needs to be worked and the more you use it, the better and more stronger it gets, the more information you retain. And if you think about, you know, if someone was to walk into a gym for the first time and train for a week, you know, in a few weeks' time or a few months' time, that initial week that they had would become their warm-up, you know, like, you know, you progress. And so you don't have that sort of tenacity or that mental resilience instantly. It's developed over time and it's through exposures to stress and good and bad. These sort of things are are developed. And for me, you know, remembering what I said as a 16, 17-year-old, I just I want to be a World Cup athlete. I was living my dream of that, you know, to me, 
I grew up in the era of sport that doesn't exist now um, where sporting people and Olympians were on cereal boxes and they were they were somebodies and they were contributing and they were part of our Australian identity and I wanted that you know I don't necessarily think I think about this all the time actually now in retirement but I didn't want to be famous but I wanted to be somebody and I wanted to do something and that still continues today when you're driving up the mountain at five o'clock in the morning and well your alarm's going off at four thirty and and it's getting hard, it's remembering the why that continues like I'd be lying if I said that there were days that I didn't want to do it. Of course there were days that I didn't want to do it. And there were also days that I said, I just can't do this today. One of the best pieces of advice, and I've got no idea where I've heard it, but it particularly came useful became useful for me in the last four years of my career was that you should never quit on a bad day. If you're going to quit, quit on a good day because the experience deserves the opportunity to see good and bad. And if you quit on the bad day, you could never experience the good. But if you still experience the good and you go, you know what, it was good but it's just not good enough, then that's fine. So remembering that when, you know, it hurts in the gym and your body's tired and or you're injured and, and you know, there, there's all sorts of things and stresses that surround life in general, let alone the athletic path that resilience and tenacity develops over time and you just get into the routine. And for me, it was all about the routine. I knew that, you know, from September to November, I knew that I would be over in Europe in pre-season training, which can feel crazy when you're leaving the other side of the world, but it was where I wanted to be. And as an athlete, an interesting point that I like to talk about quite a bit that is, and a lot of people don't like it and don't agree with me, (laughs) is that especially in Australia, we seem to talk about say the word sacrifice a lot. And I know I I said it earlier and corrected myself about my parents, but this element of like sacrificing your life. I'm like, no, no, it's a choice. I made the choice to pursue this. And I was fortunate enough to to be afforded the opportunity to to pursue this. No one held a gun to my head, you know, and and also on the other, you know, it's not curing cancer. (laughs) I'm not flying a rocket to the moon. It's just skiing. You know, at the soul, at the bare roots of it, it's something that I truly love. So the sacrifice thing, to me, it's it's not correct because I didn't sacrifice my relationship. Because if my relationship didn't work because of my skiing, well, obviously I didn't value my relationship in the way that I did my skiing. So I, I made that choice. Um, and I know that sounds really hard, but again, it comes down to aligning yourself with people who share your values Therefore, you know, you shouldn't feel that you have to miss out. I missed out on many, many, many weddings and funerals and births of children and all these things. And and as I got older, my decisions around my sport started to change, which is why I knew that I was coming to the end of my career. That's a natural thing. You know, I don't feel that I missed out on anything because of my career. So I don't believe in the word sacrifice. Yeah, I love that. And I get completely where you're coming from. I wanted to talk about the opposite of getting into the routine. So you talked about the routine building and then the years and years and years. What's it like at the other end? Because I guess the decision to step away from the sport, you know, technically retire, is driven by certain things, but so many of those things that have been literally the routine and the, the heartbeat of your life over a dozen plus years suddenly stops. How's that been for you? Um, that's been a challenge. And I did spend the last probably 
the, the last half of my career justifying to myself why I was continuing a lot. I felt that being an athlete was a very selfish thing and so I was constantly immersing myself in my community and and finding different ways to add value so that I could kind of justify this selfish path that I was pursuing. So when my retirement happened, you know, finding your purpose is a challenging thing. And and to be honest, I'm still not really sure I've found it yet. I'm exploring it all the time. Being a new mum helps because I definitely have a purpose there because, you know, I've had to grow and then support a little person and, you know, my husband through this period. So that's definitely probably helped. (laughs) But really, it's funny, I've only just thought about this now as I've said, you know, about not quitting on a bad day. Like my retirement didn't go the way that I thought it would. It didn't happen in the way that I that I had originally planned and you know, I was like I was in Russia when the Ukraine bombed Russia, so I was extracted out of Russia. We'd just had the Olympics through COVID and my, basically my cup was full. I'd already done a hotel quarantine with two dislocated elbows. I was in a bad way come Beijing 2022. So I couldn't handle any more. And I removed myself from Europe about six weeks early and came home. And then my retirement was announced in May. And I was planning on that not being until September. But due to my, you know, ability to immerse myself in my community as an athlete and continue to fight for an athlete's worth and opportunity um, when I was an athlete, you know, thus opportunities came from that for me to pursue a new career, leveraging my old career as an athlete. And um you know, all of a sudden I was announcing my retirement. So it was a, it was an interesting period. The purpose thing is, is a challenge because my purpose before was to inspire through action in terms of me doing the doing of skiing and the doing of being an athlete and, and demonstrating the good behavior and the, the training and the hard work and the work ethic and all these things. And all of a sudden I didn't have to do that anymore. And I could help doing things that didn't put my life at risk <laughs> in terms of my sport, which was very, very dangerous. And, and I could actually just explore new ways to, to grow and develop my sport and my love for sport. I always knew that I would work in sport. So I call me, maybe I was naive, but, or arrogant, but here we are. I'm working in sport and I've retired. All those people that said, you know, what happens when you're, when you've done skiing, what are you going to have? Well, I've, you know, perpetuated my career into sport. And thankfully, I work for an organization that let me be me and explore the opportunities that sport can offer for others. And I really enjoy it, you know, and I think that's a that's an absolute blessing yeah yeah and that didn't that didn't just fall on your lap did it i mean it's something else that i wanted to explore sammy because obviously along the way whilst busy being an athlete and everything you've also got to make sure that you earn a living and i know that you were very purposeful in kind of your sense of how you wanted to create a career for yourself and something that potentially had longevity beyond your time as an active athlete tell us about that yeah, I, I came up with creative ways for my national sporting organization or the institutes that I was affiliated with to employ me whilst I was an athlete. So if I had an idea for a camp that would, you know, bring other girls or young athletes or whatever, I I would pitch it and, you know, they'd often say yes because they needed 
things, you know, if we got most most sports funded by government grants, so you've got a good idea, it goes into the grant application and all of a sudden you've got a girls' ski cross camp, which is which is what happened. And through my, I guess, thirst to be involved in sport at a deeper level whilst I was an athlete, opportunities then just kept coming up, you know, and, and I was I wasn't necessarily having to search for opportunities. Opportunities were being presented to me to represent the sport or the nation doing things and the organisations that I was affiliated with were recognising that I was a good advocate. So that would help us. And, you know, part of that is why I was the closing ceremony flag bearer at the 2022 Olympic Winter Games because I might not have won a medal but I was an advocate for sport and without sport we don't have jobs and we don't have athletes and we don't have all these things. So, yeah, the progression for me to move into the sporting space, I was sort of planting that seed all along and building up my own portfolio, for lack of a better term, so that when the time did come that I would be asking for paid employment properly, they could see that I was an asset that they didn't want to lose. But all credit to you because, you know, just as I've been listening to you kind of share about your sporting journey and other elements of your of your journey, you know, the word purpose comes out a lot, Sammy, and, and I have the privilege to interview a, a lot of people who've experienced some pretty amazing things in, in their lives, some in the business world and others from other other disciplines. One of the things that to me characterizes people who, for whom amazing things happen is they tend to be very purposeful. And it's really, it's fascinating for me to listen to your, your level of purposefulness in your sport, but also see how you were able to literally utilize that same force in creating a, effectively what has become a career and as you say, it wasn't like I applied for a job. You made things happen that weren't there in the first place, right? Yeah, I think it's one one thing that being a female winter sport athlete from Australia, it's like the trifecta of like lowest of low, you know, in terms of marketability in this country, um, especially at the time that I was pursuing it in the beginning, was that I had to come to terms with the fact that I was my own best salesperson. And if I didn't advocate for myself why would anyone else and that again that can come across as quite an arrogant thing or an even assertive thing you know a lot of people get scared when females go in and back for themselves but through that because I was doing things not just for myself I often you know for me I was I'm like I said I I love sport and I don't want sport to disappear um I came in you know and I was able to represent the athlete groups on many many fronts to boards and all sorts of things for the sport as a whole not for my own personal agenda that has sort of helped create the opportunities that I've now got and yeah I, I sort of you know, I wouldn't say that I, I created a job for myself. I certainly am doing things in my job that I wasn't expecting that I would do. But I do have the opportunity to explore what it is that I'd like to do and what the limitations could be or hopefully there are no limitations to, to the things that sport can do. And that for me is really exciting, you know, that I have so many projects um, on the horizon for 2024 that I don't even know if they're going to get off the ground, but I'm really excited at the potential to explore and pitch those to my workforce so that we can hopefully improve things and make things more accessible and and perpetuate this great sport of, of skiing and snowboarding, you know. Like that's 
that's what gets me excited. This is a sport for life and as an athlete, um, reconnecting with my love for the sport in general, let alone the competitive element, is what made me continue to show up through those hard times. And we have athletes in winter sports in Australia and I know having spent some time with the Australian Olympic Committee recently and some other athletes from other sports, we have sports people in this country that retire and never do their sport again. And to me that's a real failure because it should have been done in the beginning because they enjoyed it. And so if I can create opportunity or education around the enjoyment and the perpetuation of the sport and the pathway, then, you know, we'll have high-performing individuals and we'll also have a fleet of people that just enjoy sport, which is great because we need that too. So, yeah, like it's a pretty cool position to be in at the moment and I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, like I said, I just have had a baby and I've come back full-time straight away because, you know, I just want what's another bit more stress? <laughs> but, yeah, I'm just really enjoying getting to experience the sport on other levels rather than just through the athlete lens. And also I should say this, which is probably really important to your listeners, an important thing is is challenging others' perception of me. You know, a lot of people only ever saw me as Sammy the athlete. They didn't know what qualifications or or experience I held before coming into this job and they they still don't so I challenge that perception of me you know and I and I challenge people to treat me as their equal often but it's all in the delivery and how you do it I guess that makes it well received or not but it must give you a tremendous amount of satisfaction when you can see that that challenge actually kind of manifests absolutely yeah I wanted to ask so you talked about having to confront your 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 change in purpose because it's not the action part anymore, right? So so do you have a refined version of your purpose? I see my purpose as supporting snow sports, you know, really that ultimately and, and sports in general, but at the moment is specifically snow sports, is encouraging the the general participation in, in snow sports and then a participation in competitive snow sports. You know, for every gold medal, there was five or ten athletes below them that got that gold medalist to where they are. So I just, I love being able to share the many, many things that, that sport can do, you know, the careers that it creates. You know, there's so many people out there who are doctors and physios that would have loved to have been a ski racer and now working with us on an Olympic team or as part of our medical staff as an athlete. So, you know, it's, sport opens this whole amazing world of doors and part of it I think as well is a little bit of a, a F you to the people that said, you know, like athletes are dumb and you'll never do anything and you'll be working, you know, in a low-end job or like cleaning toilets because that's all you'll be qualified to do when you when you stop being an athlete and understanding that, well, without one athlete there's no coaches, there's no administration, there's no media, there's no all sorts of things that we need each other for. So continuously challenging that is my purpose. And and if you ask the CEO of Snow Australia, he says my purpose at the moment is to shake the tree and I'm very much enjoying that. I love it. And shaking the tree is is a, a wonderful thing in itself. There's so much more I'd love to explore, but I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to move to what's pretty much a, a ritual in, in, in the Hard Yards podcast, which is my closing question, which goes a little bit like this. So Sammy, you're sitting at, at your desk, you can be at your home desk or your, your work desk, whatever it is, and there's, there's probably, you know, a wall that you 
when you look up, that's what you see. Notionally, I'm going to give you a paintbrush and a, and a tin of paint and invite you to write some words on that wall that you're going to look up and see every time you look up what you write. Passion plus persistence equals performance. Passion plus persistence equals performance. Yeah. Nice. That was written by Coach on my first ever training program before my first ever international trip as an 11-year-old and I've never forgotten it because it to me means that there's no time, like there's no time limit on when you can be your best and if it happens in 10 years for one person and one year for another, it doesn't mean that one person was a success and one was a failure. You know, if you are persistent with something and you're really passionate about it, ultimately you're going to achieve some sort of performance. And that's, you know, for me is something that shaped my career and it's something that is helping me on the other side too. Nice, nice. And, Sammy, I'm sure people who are listening to this, because obviously we have a lot of listeners in the corporate world, there's going to be a lot of people who go, I'd love to get Sammy to come in and talk to our folks or whatever it might be. How can people find you or hunt you down? Yeah, just um, the best way to find me is on my social media on Instagram or Facebook, which is at Sammy Kennedy Sim, S-A-M-I-K-E-N-N-E-D-Y-S-I-M, or via my website, sammykennedysim.com. I'm more than happy to come and help anyone in the leadership space. I love sharing my stories and more importantly, challenging the perceptions of others. So looking forward to spending more time in this space. And Sammy, I'm sure anyone who gets gets you in and, and gets you in front of people is going to just be thrilled with your ability to not just inspire with a story, but also, you know, the way you the way you share your passion and and, and the the depth of commitment to your purpose. It's no wonder to me that you were able to compete at the highest level as long as you did. And I'm sure that there's going to be a tremendous number more extraordinary achievements ahead for Sammy Kennedy Sim. It's been an absolute delight having you on the show. Thank you so much. We wish you all the best, Sammy. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do, and keep believing in yourself as a leader.